Support for this podcast comes from Invent Together. I bet you didn't know that inventing activity by black inventors peaked in 1899, and it has never recovered. Black and Hispanic college graduates patented half the rate of white college graduates. That's just one of the reasons why you need to know about Invent Together. When our patent system gets more diverse, our nation will get stronger and more successful. Find out how you can help diverse inventors and unleash economic opportunity at inventtogether.org. Hi, and welcome to The Pollsters. I'm Margie O'Meara, Democratic pollster with GBA Strategies. And I'm Kristen Soltis-Anderson, Republican pollster with Echelon Insights. And each week we bring you the polls driving the latest news in politics, tech, and pop culture. So we're both on remote today, and we're in the same hotel room. We are in Los Angeles. No, we're in the same hotel, but we are crazy. Well, yes, we're, we're not in the same hotel. Yes. <laughs> Thank you for that clarification. We are not in the same hotel room. We're in the same hotel. We are speaking today at the National Conference of State Legislators in L.A. It's lovely out here. Everyone seems so happy and it's not too hot. It's It's been delightful. So, Margie, you are, this is a quick trip for you. You're, you're in, you're speaking, you're back out. I have been in California since Monday. I had focus groups out here and somebody tweeted at us that they would love a like a day in the life of a pollster segment where we describe what the heck actually happens when someone does focus groups. So we should we should hold that in reserve as an idea for the future. But what I could say is when you do focus groups on the West Coast, it is rough because you land, you're still on Eastern time, and then your focus groups start at maybe 5.30 local time. So it feels like 8.30. You're wrapping up around what feels like midnight or after midnight to you. It's a lot. So then I've taken my my time making my way from San Diego, which is where I did my groups, up here to L.A. I got to see Hall and Oates perform on Tuesday night with my buddy Matt Baker. He, uh, I've known him for a while. He does a podcast called Roman Circus. So if you're interested in chit chat about the Catholic Church, check out Roman Circus. Um, and so, it, we, you know, we went to go see Hall and Oates, <laughs> which was an experience. It's just another day in the life of a pollster. You know, it's just this impromptu decision to go see Hall and Oates. But yeah, the West Coast groups are pretty grueling. I often come out the day before so I can, you know, get adjusted and also don't feel the pressure of sort of getting there on time on the day of groups from a cross country trip. But I never make the right choices I need to make in order to actually get acclimated in time for the when the groups come. So I'm like, I'm up at four in the morning and I'm like, okay, this is this is the opposite of what my plan was. We are um, we are recording this at 6 a.m. local time, yeah. and I have to tell you, I have, in fact, adjusted to Pacific time by this point, <laughs> so 6 a.m. really does feel like 6 a.m. right now. Oh, yeah. I feel like I have been awake and, and alert now for quite some time, so <laughs> by the time tomorrow, nobody asked me for anything. So, um, But anyway, what are the top lines this week? The top lines... I can't go for that. Are people turning away from President Trump this week? And then there are many incumbents who are saying, say it isn't so. We'll look at the generic ballot and we'll take a look at some polling in some states. Then who is out of touch on gun polling? Margie's got some new research out there we can discuss. And then if you're a rich girl, do you think that Donald Trump has helped you or not? We'll look at some new polling from PRRI about the impact that Donald Trump has had on various demographic groups. And finally, whoa, here they come. 
when statistical sharks attack. We'll do a little <laughs> shark deep dive on uh, academic research about whether shark attacks influence elections. I love that. Those are like 80s dad jokes updated for God, I, I had to make that Hall & Oates concert worthwhile for the podcast. <laughs> no, that's good. So first, our poll of the week. There's a lot of news about the news and trust in Trump this week. He had a rally where there were a lot of folks with the from the QAnon community, I guess. Um, and there was something that uh, this piece of news, this poll came out from CBS that's been bouncing around that I think reflects that. Uh, and among Trump voters, so among strong Trump supporters, I should say, who do you trust for accurate information? 91% say Trump, 63% say friends and family, 11% say mainstream media. I'm always a little kind of wincy about the phrase mainstream media because what's the mainstream media exactly? The mainstream media is like a phrase used about media you don't like typically. I mean, Fox News is a mainstream media. It's, you know, it's a major network. Isn't that mainstream media, et cetera? So, but the caveat aside, um, this, I think, reflects part of what we I see in focus groups, part of what you see when you have folks who, you know, trust what Trump is saying. He had said something at a rally last week. What you're seeing and what you're hearing, don't believe it. It's not true. Um, and, and this poll, I think, kind of captures that this moment in the narrative that, you know, Trump supporters really trust him as a source of news more than anybody else. So let's talk for just, uh, well, one, I think, you know, in this poll, you know, you're asking, who do you trust for accurate information? I don't think it surprises me that Trump supporters, 91% would say that they trust Trump. What we don't know is what the alternative universe version of this poll question says. If you were to early in the Obama presidency, ask people, who do you, I, I think the fact that 91% of Trump supporters trust Trump is not the headline number because I, right. I actually think I, I do. And actually the friends and family number is in some ways the one that surprises me the most. Like the polling that has shown Trump supporters don't trust the mainstream media, especially if you have worded it that way. If you have said mainstream media, like that has become a buzzword right. in conservative land. So it's the friends and family number that surprises me because usually that is like the top of any list when you're asking people, who do you trust for information on blah, whatever it is? Friends and family is almost always toward the top of that list. So only being at 63% while Trump is at one, that is the surprising finding for me from this poll. But I mean, I wonder if you split it up between friends and family, what would you find? But as opposed to grouping them together is kind of the other issue because family, you have the whole, you have your whole family. There are people there you may trust more than others. What does that mean? And, you know, they're not necessarily, you didn't pick them. You may decide you don't trust them anymore as, as a news source, friends you pick. But anyway, that's another little quibble. But it is, it, you know, the interest in this poll number reflects worries or conversations that we're having about whether or not, you know, Trump or Trump's supporters are believing an inaccurate set of facts. Well, what is, uh, so the next poll that we have coming up here is, you know, we'll, we'll just our brief check-in with the Trump job approval. You know, he's sitting at 42.7%, very slight decline. Um, but again, when I say decline, it's minimal to non-existent. Uh, what 
I found fascinating. So there's a poll that has come out from YouGov, uh, Economist YouGov. And Margie, you are not a fan of this question. I am very interested in the Republican version of this question. Basically, they asked people, do you wish that the either Republican or Democratic candidates who run for Congress this year will be more like and on the Democratic side, they say, will they be more like Barack Obama or more like Bernie Sanders? On the Republican side, they say, would they be more like Donald Trump or more like George W. Bush? I sort of love this question and think that it is valuable for the Republican side. But you had yeah. some you had some beef with it on the Democratic well, side. Well, because I mean, what does it mean? You know, <laughs> what are you what are people thinking of? And I guess this is often what we see. I mean, there there are lots of examples of this, like. It, the question may be interesting, but even if we don't know exactly what people are thinking when we, you know, when they respond to, we're not giving them something precise to think about. We're not saying, do you favor or oppose, you know, free college, right? We are ha asking these, this question that is deliberately kind of vague and, and not specific. You know, what do you mean? More like Barack Obama in his style, more like Barack Obama in his experience, more in his policy positions, you know, in his, in, in what exactly? Um, so it's not a surprise to me that that among Democrats, you have more say, more like Barack Obama, that that's not a surprise. Uh, you know, I just wonder what people are thinking of when they when they are answering this. Um, but you're right, the Republican, I mean, still, what are people thinking when they're thinking about the Republican version? Do you want a candidate more like Trump or more like George W. Bush? Are they thinking style? Are they thinking, you know, policy positions? Are they thinking you know, some things, something else about their team or, you know, that how polite they are or their, you know, the authenticity of their faith or who knows, you know, who knows what people are thinking about. Um, so that's why these questions to me seem a little vague. But I guess it is interesting that among Republicans, uh, you know, 62 percent, is that what that says? 62 yeah. percent say they want someone like Trump. That's not overwhelming. I mean, that's, you know, you have pretty sizable never say they're not sure they prefer someone like George W. Bush. Yes. So that's part of why I thought this was really interesting. Um, so I worked earlier this year for a congressional candidate in Texas um, who's lovely and had worked in the Bush administration and had been vocally pretty critical of Trump. And Jen so Sarver, this, a Jen Sarver, great yes. person. Uh, so this was a question that we put into the field to try to understand, okay, if, you know, does the fact that she worked in the Bush administration and is, you know, very positive about George W. Bush, like, is that something that will help in any way, given that she has been publicly critical of President Trump? Uh, what we found in that district was not really, um, but we did ask a question similar to this. Uh, I, I think in our question, we did narrow in specifically on the style question, like whose style do you prefer? Um, I don't remember the question wording specifically, but I was fascinated to see this because on this question, I think Donald Trump does worse nationally than he did in that particular district. Um, and, and the reason why I think this is important, one is, or at least is more valuable as a question on the Republican side than maybe that Sanders versus Obama one is, is on the Democratic side, maybe I just am unaware of it, but I'm, I'm, I have not seen a Democratic primary pop up where the competition is who can be most like Obama or who can be most like Bernie Sanders. Uh, maybe they exist here and there. But on the Republican side, this question of who is more like Trump 
whatever that means, policy style, all the trappings involved in that, that is a core question of some of these primaries. I mean, look at what's happening down in my home state of Florida in the governor's primary. You have Adam Putnam and Ron DeSantis who are having a fight over who is the more Trumpian candidate. And for Putnam, that was just not a battle he was ever going to win because Ron DeSantis is on Fox News all the time and now has the Trump endorsement. So as long as the battlefield was who is the Trumpier candidate, that was going to be a tougher one for Putnam to win, even though he's the very conservative. Um, but this this question of are you more like Trump or are you more like the Republican Party of the 2000s is an extremely relevant question in a lot of these primaries. And the fact that Yes, when you ask Republicans, do you approve or disapprove of the job Trump is doing? His approval ratings are north of 80 percent. The fact that he's only at 62 on this question suggests that maybe the maybe the inside the party resistance to this moment is not dead. Um so I, I just it was it was curious to me the fact that only 62 percent picked Trump on this question, the fact that, you know, maybe George W. Bush isn't even the best person to put against Donald Trump. I just thought all of it was very interesting. And I'll leave it at that. So, you know, just it, it, this is, I think, worth noting. We're going to talk about the Wesleyan Media Project later when we talk about house races and in the states. But they they have been tracking um mentions of the presidents in advertising, political advertising that's going on. So just now in the advertising that's been going from June 5th to July 29th on broadcast, so it doesn't include cable. I'm assuming this is including primary. This is not just general election advertising. This is primary advertising. So that's most of what we're seeing right now. But the ads with a positive mention about Trump, that's about you know 15% of the ads that have been run during that time window. And that's comparable to George W. Bush positive mentions in 2002 in a similar time frame, just as a point of reference. Um, he, there are about 10% of ads that have a negative mention, negative mention of Trump. Um, during Obama, you had a larger percentage of negative mentions about Obama by Republican ads compared to negative mentions of Trump by Democratic ads right now. Well, and we talked a little bit a, a few weeks ago about the poll. I don't remember if it was Pew or Gallup. I'm so sorry for whichever research entity did this poll, but it's the question about, I, uh, I think it was Pew. I'm like closing my eyes and I'm like, okay, are the charts yellow and brown? Because then they're Pew. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, the question about, uh, is your vote mostly about like the issues and the candidates or is the vote mostly about the president support or oppose and how this election has these record numbers of it being about the president. And that's being driven by both sides, both by Democrats saying my vote is mostly about opposing Trump and Republicans saying my vote is mostly about um, supporting Trump uh, that, you know, to what extent is that is that the is that driving the media environment to talk about Trump more on the Republican side is or is the media environment just following where public opinion was already at. Right, right. Hard to hard to distinguish those two. So me, moving on to the states, um, there is some new state polling in a variety of different races we're going to talk about. The generic overall is still, you know, m basically stable where it's been for the last few weeks with Democrats having an advantage of plus seven. 
Um, there's, you know, as we've talked about this show before, this is a pretty blunt instrument. It's not a finely tuned assessment of where the congressional battlefield is, given that it's a national poll and there are no names in it. There are still lots of primaries. There are primaries on Tuesday. There are going to be primaries through on to September. So we don't even know the field yet for a lot of races. So um, so there's still a lot of, of TBD. Um, but I think the climate still shows an advantage for Democrats regardless. And uh, let's talk a little bit. I want to talk about Texas. We could talk a little bit about California House races at polling. But Texas polling made a lot of news this week because there were two polls that were released in the Senate. So this is the Senate on the House generic in um, uh, the race against Beto O'Rourke and Ted Cruz. And they both showed basically Cruz up a little bit. Now, you know, one showed like plus two, the other one plus six. But the Quinnipiac one was a narrowing from an earlier poll. Um, you know, I don't know if it's two or six or what, right? I think the issue here is not what the exact number is at this stage. It's, you know, August. These polls were taken during July. Um, it's what else is happening beneath the surface. Like, here are some little pollstery things you can do when you're looking at these polls rather than say, oh, my God, Cruz is just up plus six. You know, it, what else is happening there? Um, and I think there are a couple things to take a look at. One is how well known is O'Rourke, right? He's a lot less well known than Cruz at this point, even though he's out campaigning, even though he's got, you know, he's been fundraising and he's been out, you know, d- doing the work. He's still going to be less well known than the incumbent senator. So in the Quinnipiac poll, I think about 40 some odd percent didn't know him well enough to have an impression. So that suggests that there is room for him to grow there once he introduces himself to folks and he has the resources to do it because his fundraising has been pretty successful. The other thing to look at is favorability and favorability overall and with independence. So Cruz, you know, this is my beef. I've said before, sometimes people just look at the favorable like, oh, Cruz is 50 percent favorable and O'Rourke is what is it like 30 some odd percent. 33% favorable. That doesn't necessarily mean that Cruz is more popular than O'Rourke because Cruz's unfavorables are higher than O'Rourke's. That ratio between favorable to unfavorable is higher with O'Rourke's. He's got a bigger gap between you know favorable to unfavorable than than Cruz does if, as a, if you're looking at percentages. And so does that stay the same as O'Rourke becomes better known or does that change? And the people who know him now, are they you know, the folks who want to get to know him, and that's going to change as people learn more about him. You know, we don't know, but these are things to look at. So you're not just looking at plus two, plus six only, but really digging in a little bit deeper because both the Lyceum poll and the Quinnipiac poll, they release a lot of stuff. So you can dig in and you know, figure it out for yourself. Yeah, the, the argument that this is bad news for Cruz is based around the idea that a lot of people don't yet know who over work is. And so the fact, you know, if you are an incumbent and you are below 50%, that is usually considered a bad place to be. On the other hand, you know, to what extent does, is the people need to get to know work question, how relevant is that if right now the ballot test looks just like uh, Cruz's fave on fave? Like it's very, very, very similar. And so is this Senate race more just a referendum on Cruz? 
And if his favorables lean slightly positive, even if they're not great, even if you'd much rather they be better, if he's got plus eight on his favorables, as long as he can hang on to that, he'll be okay. Uh, So I think that's, you know, do you think of this race as, is it a referendum on Cruz? And that's what the ballot and his favorables look the same right now. Uh, You know, is it possible to make Cruz's numbers any worse? Or do people in Texas already kind of know who Ted Cruz is and have made up their mind. Is that the core question? Or is it movable if people got to know O'Rourke more? I, I'm not sure which side I come down on that with. But I think the fact that the ballot test almost exactly lines up with Cruz's fave on fave is not a coincidence. Yeah, I mean, sometimes people use as a rule of thumb, like your approval rating is a seal, you know, that's, you can't really go higher than that in your vote. I mean, you know, there are lots of ways that people look at this. Also, you know, the other thing to think about, too, is you have, you know, folks who are in perennial battleground races, right? So if you are looking at, you know, the folks who are kind of always the swingy congressional races, like whether or not they're good fits for their district, they're at least prepared. They know that their district is split down the middle in terms of party ID. They're they're ready. They know, you know, Democrats in red states, senators, uh, those folks know that those states lead Republican. It was not it's not a surprise to them. So they've you know, they, they have a they have a method and they and they have a they have a, a way of connecting with voters around the state because it's not a surprise to them that they're running in a red state. Um you know, Cruz has a bombastic quality that, you know, it, it may be harder for him to kind of change now that he's in a state with he's in a place where he's a, has a tough race is now, you know, can he now describe himself as some sort of like willing to work together with everybody kind of person now that he's in this tough race or does he have to kind of stick with the <laughs> with the message and the vibe that I Ted feel Cruz like has Ted had. Cruz that's a big pivot for Ted yeah, Cruz right. I'm the kumbaya let's all work together and hold hands guy I feel like that is uh is a little a too off brand for him right so so then so then what does he do you know he just he's got to get his you know base out or he's got to find some way to make Beto you know um, not likable, which is obviously hard given that Beto has been doing well and getting people to like him. Um, and then, you know, there are other races in California that have released some polls in California. Uh, 50, there was a poll released by Ben Tolchin um, showing uh, 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 Duncan Hunter at 51 percent um, and uh, the Democratic challenger at 42 percent. You know, some of these polls, what's interesting here, I think, is how they were released a variety of different options. So the so the Tolchin poll released votes after various profiles and explains here's what the initial vote is. And then as people are given more information, the, the margin narrows. Um, then there was a poll released by Monmouth where they show different turnout scenarios. So this is the Rohrbacker race um, where uh, Dana Rohrbacker is, is down a couple points looking at everybody. Then as they change the different audiences, you know, it, it, it doesn't change the race. It still looks like a tight race, right? But a standard midterm electorate, then he, he's still down two points. Now, if the Democratic surge, if there's a surge in Democratic turnout and performance, then he's down four points. But that's an interesting way of saying, look, here are just some different options, which Monmouth has done before, I think is worth um, looking at and, or thinking about how, you know, how we report and discuss polling. There's not just one right answer. It's a variety of different answers, especially this far out. And then in California 25, this was a uh, poll released by Global Strategy Group, 
where they released some of the messages that they would use um, uh, about Steve Knight. And these, and then we can talk about the relevance or the prevalence of healthcare messaging, really show different types of healthcare messaging and environmental and healthcare messaging that works. And they release the full text of the wording that they used and say, here's, here's what worked, here's what we asked, and here's what worked, whether it's the Republican healthcare plan or the Clean Air and Water Act, um, but really saying, Here, here's where we're going. Yeah. Uh, so I think, you know, in these California House races, California is a place where Republicans are going to have a lot of there are a lot of Republican seats in this state that are on the table and the Democratic path to uh, House majority kind of goes through this state. Um, and so whether it's a race like Rohrbacher, which Republicans for a long time have thought he is in trouble and is perhaps too entangled and various Russian situations um, that that that's was always going to be a, a tougher race, uh, tougher race to win. Um, but there are a bunch of races, whether it's the Duncan Hunter seat, the, the night seat, um, you know, Mimi Walters from from around here in Southern California is a race that, you know, me working in Republicans, keeping more Republican women in Congress land like that's an important race for us. Uh, so uh, California is very important on the House side. Uh, before I move on out of the states, can we talk about Florida for just a second? Yeah. Um, so Florida is an interesting case. You know, as Margie mentioned, if you are a Democrat running in a red state, like theoretically, you've got time to, you know, prepare for what you're going to need to brand yourself as in order to survive. I guess, one, this depends on do you think Florida is a red or a blue state? I mean, it narrowly voted for Donald Trump, but that technically makes it a red state. You know, it's a it's a pretty purple state. Um, Bill Nelson has always been, I think, has always tried to kind of have this more moderate Democrat vibe. You know, he can go to North Florida and talk about being an astronaut and he's got the southern accent and it kind of works. And it may be working less well this time around um, that Rick Scott in Florida, according to the Mason-Dixon poll uh, that came out this week, uh, has this is a competitive Senate race. Rick Scott has a three-point lead over Bill Nelson, 47 to 44. There are 9% undecided. Uh, Mason-Dixon finds that, so the I-4 corridor, which is where I grew up in central Florida, um, that it has been leaning toward Rick Scott. And I think that's pretty interesting because, you know, the area where I grew up has also seen, you know, a large influx of folks coming from Puerto Rico after uh, Hurricane Maria. You know, lots of questions this year about, OK, well, will that change the calculus in Florida? Um, it still seems perhaps not so much. Now, I notice in the crosstabs for this poll, they say Nelson is a runaway favorite among young voters aged 18 to 34. Uh, but Florida has an awful lot of retired folks. And so uh, Rick Scott sort of doing much better among the older voter groups is a boon to him unless Democrats can change the calculation and get more young voters out to the polls. Now, this is not in our script, but I think just a, a interesting thing to note, um, I saw some of our, our friends in polling land tweeting out an analysis of voter registration this week, pointing out that in uh, many key areas that younger voters are not registering to vote in higher numbers than usual, that this idea of young voters surging on that front, it was just not bearing out. My pushback, though, is we still don't know 
know. We may know that young voters are not registering to vote at higher numbers. The question is not are they are new people registering to vote. The question, I think, is are presidential year people being inspired to participate in a non-presidential year? And you wouldn't see that in voter registration necessarily, but you'd see that in turnout at the polls. And that's what we saw when you look at voter files in some of these specials or in places like Virginia. Um, so while it is true that young voters are not registering in larger numbers, it's not necessarily the case yet that we can say, oh, well, they won't matter in the midterms. There's still a chance that presidential year young people become active in a cycle where they are not normally. And at least in the case of Florida, it would be young people who would be kind of saving Bill Nelson's Senate seat. Right. I mean, the conventional wisdom is converting a non-voter to a voter for the very first time is harder than converting a drop-off voter, so somebody who votes in presidential elections but not in midterms typically, into a midterm voter. But that they've already made the commitment once before to show up and vote. You know, they've physically gone through the steps that one must go through to vote. And so getting them to do that again is different than saying, okay, this thing that you've never had any interest in doing, you're going to do it for the first time right now. But yeah, this Florida Senate, I mean, I don't think I've seen a poll that has had the gap between them more than five points, but I could be wrong. But I mean, it has been like, this under five, right? Narrower than five points this whole time, at least everything I've seen. Yeah, this is it's this is close. This is not a this is it, it's not a race where you can say anybody is comfortably uh, ahead. But the fact that Bill Nelson is this kind of more moderate ish incumbent in a purple state, I think given that the conventional wisdom is that this is a tough year for anyone who is very Trump affiliated and, you know, Rick Scott has been pretty vocally pro Trump. Um, the fact that, you know, he is, I think so well liked or as well liked in Florida as he is not even from Trump stuff, but from just like, how is the state of Florida going stuff? I think is what has made this race. And frankly, I, I think, you know, Bill Nelson just sort of, having been around forever and in a way maybe taking it for granted that, you know, well, re-election has always been kind of easy for him. I mean, I, I forget who he ran against. Did he run against Catherine Harris at one point? I mean, I, th I don't think that Republicans have put up a super strong challenger against him in recent years. So it's also kind of like shaking off a little bit of that rust and remembering how to get back out there on the campaign trail. We'll take a look. Are you good with people? Maybe you're organized or have a knack for numbers. Well, then chances are you've got skills that could lead to a new career. A Google Career Certificate can help you get a foot in the door with top employers in fast-growing fields like IT support, project management, data analytics, and user experience design. It's professional-level training developed and taught by Google employees. And it's all online so you can learn around your schedule. Put your skills to work. Go to grow.google certificates. So now, what are people talking about in all these races, right? I love this Wesleyan Media Project stuff where they just go through the process of coding all the ads to really figure out what people are saying. And so we talked about positive mentions of Trump, positive mentions of Obama, Bush, et cetera. They also coded the content and broke it up by House and Senate on the Democratic side and on the Republican side. Now, again, this is from the period of June 5th to July 29th. I'm going to and just broadcast. So lots of people are, you know, just on cable or they run different ads on cable. And I'm assuming, again, that a lot of this is um, primary stuff. 
but still, I think you see a really big difference in what the two can, you know, the two parties are talking about. So on the House side, they have here are the five different categories of things that people are talking about. Healthcare, anti-Trump, Medicare, pro-Affordable Care Act, and gun policy. We're going to talk about gun policy in a minute. I mean, it's interesting to me. Well, one, three of those things are kind of healthcare related, right? Um, healthcare broadly speaking, Medicare, and then in support of the Affordable Care Act, anti-Trump is at 40% of airings. Now, again, I think this includes primary. On the Republican side, pro-Trump is the number one, you know, most frequent message on the Republican side in their own advertising, followed by taxes, immigration, the budget, and then health care as, as the last. There aren't three different things that are health care. It's just health care is the last of the top five. Um, with a kind of different set of issues on the Senate side with corruption being part of both Democratic and Republican advertising, um, jobs being part of the Democratic list and manufacturing being part of the Democratic list and on the Republican side, um, taxes being higher than pro-Trump. It's, it's just a little bit different, but I just found this fascinating. Like, it's there are ways of seeing what the parties are. I mean, there's sort of what people say in Washington and observers say that the races are about and that this election is about. But by looking at what people are actually spending money to talk about on the air, you can actually see what the candidates themselves think the race is about. Yeah. And this was something the the rise of health care as an issue on the Democratic side. I mean, We've I've seen lots of polling that says that this is, has been a sort of underserved issue that people care a lot about. But you if you just follow a bunch of D.C. reporters on Twitter, you'd almost never hear that with one exception, which is Amy Walter a couple months ago had tweeted that she was like, healthcare is going to be the issue. healthcare is going to be the thing that no one's talking about in D.C., but that is going to be driving these races. And so she's like, I don't normally redo this, but I'm re-upping my tweet for March to have a little I told you so moment here. Because uh, it, it's true. I mean, the polls for a while have shown this to sort of be a potential pain point for Republicans. Um, and, you know, you mentioned before, forget somebody had tweeted like, oh, or, you know, Democrats are too focused on like whatever it was like Stormy Daniels or something. Red hen, like, the red hen. Yeah. Oh, the red hen. And you're like, no, I'm not cutting the health care question for my poll so that we can poll on this restaurant. Like, that's not a thing that's going to happen. So uh, <laughs> this is just more more evidence that what is happening out in these races is not the same thing that you might see if you, I don't know, click on cable news. Surprise, yeah, surprise. You, you know, we we know. I mean, this is not a surprise to me. I mean, we've we say this, you know, this is something that we've sort of collectively internally at a lot of our polls have been saying, which is, you know, when you ask people what's the most important issue, healthcare is almost always at the top, no matter where or when. It wasn't just like a reaction to um uh, you know, Obamacare repeal, it's a, it's, you know, people are still feeling it. So, um, so it's not a surprise to us that it's part of what Democrats are talking about. Um, even if it's, I, I guess it's also potentially not a surprise to us. That's not what Republicans are talking about as much. Um, but, it, but it's not a surprise that that's a concern for folks, uh, for sure. Now, here are some other things that people are talking about or not talking about. And, you know, yesterday, we were both talking about this, Kristen, about, you know, the Steve Bannon quote about women voters and suburban women mm-hmm. and college educated women. And uh, that was the subject of my Chris Hayes hit was built around that a little bit. And, um, you know, it, obviously some of these issues we were just talking about that people are running in their ads are really salient for women. So there are a couple polls that have come out that um, that I think reflect the, some of these trends in how women voters feel. 
Um, PRRI released a poll, and there's a lot in here about uh, LGBT rights, which I think is consistent with all the things we've seen, which is um, a lot of you know movement in people feeling that there's less discrimination a- against LGBT uh, folks, even if there is you know a little bit more salience here in the issue of allowing um, uh, wedding businesses to refuse to provide wedding services. Uh, but one of the other things that I found particularly interesting here uh, is a change from the last time they asked this question in 2003. How much discrimination is there against a variety of different groups? And so among Democrats, among Republicans, people feel there's less discrimination than they said in 2013 for everybody, Muslims, transgender, Jews, women, LGBT, etc. Among Democrats, one of the biggest upticks in uh, the perception that there is a lot of discrimination is among women. It was 55% said uh, 55% of Democrats said women faced a lot of discrimination. Now it's 71%. That's the biggest jump from from all of these. And, and all of them have had a little bit of a jump. Yeah. When you look at the top line numbers, you know, that story that the poll tells overall is mostly one of hey, it looks like discrimination has fallen um, that, you know, against, you know, whether it's gay and lesbian people, et cetera. But when you take a look at the party breakdown, you can see what's driving that, that, you know, among Democrats, then those numbers have, as terms in terms of discrimination against gay and lesbian people have not really changed. It's been this huge drop amongst Republicans uh, that's been a big driver there. Um, and and I think that the divergent directions on the women number is also fascinating uh, because you know, this is something that I, I've been trying to do a lot of research on how can you get more Republican women uh, elected to office and what would it take for the party to do that. And there are the uh, a big challenge is that the conversation on the right is, look, if if women and men both run for office and they're both equally qualified, then they both have an equal shot of getting elected. And so, I you know, this lack of comfort and I think an understandable lack of comfort with what, you know, quotas or things like that. Oh, you know, like, like there's just much more of a let's just let it shake out because I don't think that there's really huge insurmountable barriers that women are facing. And let's just let the best candidate get through. And so in that environment, unfortunately, you know, we've got these really low numbers of Republican women in Congress and, you know, how much should there be efforts, you know, not quotas, but I mean, specific efforts aimed at recruiting women to run. It's a contentious topic on the right. And I think these poll numbers really highlight why on the the right, this is a challenge on the left. Not only is it not a challenge, but there is like, that's why like 70% of Democratic women are winning their primaries, that there's this real sense of like, we have been silenced for too long and we're not taking it anymore. On the right, it's just, it's viewed in a very different light. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I do not wish for your party to, to ha- have this challenge of recruiting women candidates, women voters. I mean, it, it, it doesn't feel healthy to me to have you know, such a disproportionate amount of women and people of color in one party versus the other. But, you know, that's a sign of, you know, really such deep divisions that that it doesn't seem like there's, you know, there's there's any movement really to to fix that. Because when you see these quotes like Steve Bannon, like, oh, well, they're lost. Like, this is just a thing that happens, you know, you know, bummer. Um, 
It's magic. <laughs> wow. I wonder, how did this happen? Well, also, right. I would just like to say, I'm Republican. I'm college educated. I'm a woman. I'm still here, and I'm not surrendering. So oh, well, with, that, um, with that on the table. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully, um, you know, yeah, I, I mean, I think the Republican Party would be a lot healthier, and our things would be a lot healthier if there are more women like Kristen Salta Sanderson, uh, you know, running for office and, and in leadership positions. I want that. You know, I want that for all of us. Even even if I also at the same time love all this excitement that's on the left right now. Um, so here's another topic that you know is another issue that we did some polling on that shows uh, the role that women voters can play, and that's on the issue of guns, which I've obviously talked about quite a bit before. We released a poll yesterday for the groups uh, Guns Down and Center for American Progress, where we tested a lot of the policies that you've you know seen out there discussed. There's overwhelming support for all of them, majority support for all of them, um, uh, majority support, majority strong support for most of them. I mean, there's real clear support there. Um, the the other thing that we did that was pretty interesting, and, and it was, uh, there's a great story that Nathan Gonzalez wrote in Roll Call, where he wrote, and this is like, this is a thing that people say on Twitter sometimes, like, issue polling is bad, and it just kind of gets me a little angry, because you know, public issue polling can be kind of vague, but interesting and illustrative. But groups that are really trying to study their issues do a lot more of a deeper dive than a public poll that just has one question on abortion or one question on guns or one question on immigration. Voters' views are much more complicated. Doesn't mean issue polling is bad. Um, that's a little, you know, too pat as well. Anyway, so we did an experiment where we had a, like a progressive message and a conservative message. And then we split the same, and everyone heard the same conservative message, and everyone heard the same kind of base progressive message. And then we had three, we split the sample into three groups. And so one just heard the progressive message, didn't mention guns, it was a, like an economic message. And then one third heard a like more moderate message along with that base progressive message. So it was just an added on sentence about, you know, let's balance, let's protect the Second Amendment while also keeping guns out of dangerous hands with things like universal background checks. And then the third had a stronger message on guns added to that progressive message. So it had that base economic message and said, we need fewer guns, not more. They should be harder to get, not easier. We should ban military style assault weapons like the AR-15. And that third one did better. So this is an experiment. People don't know that we're asking. It's not where we're, it's not like we're asking them here how important is the issue of guns to your vote? Are you going to vote for somebody? Are you more likely to vote for someone because of their position on guns? Which people ask, and it's not that those questions aren't useful. Here we're just trying to glean what the difference is in an experiment without telling people what the point of the experiment is. Um, and the, the base message had an advantage over the conservative message by 13 points. But adding that stronger gun message may, boosted that advantage to a plus 23 advantage over the conservative message. Um, so, and with women, that difference between the base message and the stronger, you know, gun message is 20 points. So there's like a real wide gap there among women across party lines. The gender gap is, transcends party. So women find that message stronger than the base message compared to men of all different party groups. Um, but with men and Republicans, they like that middle of the road message. We should protect the second amendment and have background checks more than no gun message at all. So e even having that conversation about guns has some effect with people that 
you know, people assume are going to reject a message on guns, men and Republicans. And with women, having a stronger message on guns really um, adds a real, you know, packs a real punch. So, um, so, you know, Nathan wrote, I don't normally write about issue polling, but this poll is a little different. So we were really, um, you know, psyched that people were uh, taking a look at it. I think this is a kind of way, and it's like when we did a tax poll that we talked about on the show, a way of really seeing how the conversation changes. If you change, tweak the conversation, how does that impact the vote, you know, as opposed to self-reporting people's decision-making process, we try to pull it out of them. Yeah, this is, I, I think this is a great model for how issue pollsters who want to figure out how an issue might affect a race should approach their question. Because I think too often, I mean, my least favorite question that I ever have to ask in a poll is the, does this make you more or less likely to vote for X? Like, I hate that question so much. It's so useless. And I, there are times when people are like, I really want this question in. Like, this is a really important question to me. And I like, through gritted teeth, I will ask the question, but people are just terrible at assessing to what extent has this message changed my mental calculation right. on something. It, and it's because that's just not how our brains are set up. It's it's not that you're we're dumb and that's why we can't think this way. It's just not how people think. So instead, giving someone information and then asking them the relevant question, okay, now where do you stand on this, is much better than like, give me a direction, more or less likely. Like, I hate those questions. So this is a much, much, much better approach to that challenge. You're ready for me. Yeah, so we'll have all the links if people want to take a look at the language that we tested. We have the what the conservative message was, what the progressive message was. We'll have all the links, the memos public. We'll link to Nathan's article, and folks can take a look. So last but not least, uh, it's August. We should all live every week like it's Shark Week. And some academics have been living every week like it's Shark Week. Uh, Saw this pop up on Twitter, thought it was pretty funny. Uh, Over the last few years, it looks like some political science uh, academics have dug into the question of whether shark attacks influence elections. So in a paper... Blind Retrospection, Why Shark Attacks Are Bad for Democracy, from 2012, uh, by a professor named Christopher, oh, I'm going to mess this up, Achen? Oh, I'm so sorry, Christopher, if you're listening. Uh, and Larry Bartles of Van I'm sure he's used to it. I'm sure he's, it's happened to him Achen? before. Oh, gosh. Achen, Achen, uh, and Larry Bartles of Vanderbilt uh, wrote a paper assessing a 1916 series of dramatic shark attacks in New Jersey and essentially are trying to figure out, uh, because it is a random event, uh, is there a way to assess, did it affect things? Like, did that particular election diverge from the norm uh, in a way that uh, you wouldn't expect? So they develop a formal model uh, demonstrating the randomness of what they call blind retrospection, uh, which they think shows that, yes, these shark attacks did have an influence on the election that year. This is then followed by a paper by Anthony Fowler and Andrew B. Hall, who in early 2017 uh, uh, wrote a a paper countering that argument, suggesting that no, their data finds that that when you correct for other errors, uh, you find that there are in fact no effects. 
from the uh, shark attacks. This was then responded to by Bartles and Achen, who said, no, uh, in a note called Statistics as if Politics Mattered, which is my favorite part of this. Uh, They assert that, no, the the counterargument neglects important information. Basically, I, I, I... I am not steeped in the academic world enough to know if this is trolling or serious, Um, but it's delightful. Uh, I encourage everyone to check it out uh, and to live every week like it's Shark Week. You know, (laughs) so what I thought was was pretty funny about this, well, first of all, like, as I first read, I thought it was 2016, as opposed to 1916. I was like, how did I not hear about these shark attacks? And then, and then... Uh, and then I caught it, got caught up and that it was about, you know, that shark attacks caused people in New Jersey, I guess, to punish Woodrow Wilson. It reminds me of another time that New Jersey is in this kind of strange news, news of the weird, because the War of the Worlds thing, the Orson Welles did this radio broadcast said Martians are landing and everybody went to some town to like prepare for the Martians because they heard it on the radio. That town is like right next to the town where I grew up, that was like in my school district, like within kind of walking distance from where I lived, the place where all these people came running during the war of the world, say like, oh, Martians are coming. They're coming to West Windsor. Let's get ready. Let's get ready for them. And that seems kind of like this shark, this shark attack story. (laughs) I don't know why New Jersey is always in the middle of this, but I mean, maybe I do know why New Jersey is always in the middle of this, but I, I thought it was funny that it's like it's they seemed kind of similar. <laughs> so okay. what did we learn? So the key finding here is we should live since we're in California. We have this California wisdom of living every week like a shark week. I don't know what that means for you, but for me, that means listen to your friends and family, respect news organizations and make sure you are reaching out to women voters. You can find us on Twitter at, at the pollsters individually at, at Margie O'Meara and at Kay Soltis Anderson. You can find us on Facebook or at www.thepolsters.com. We love to hear from you guys. Uh, tweet us if you have any more hashtag uh, musical theater polling questions. Yes. They've been great. You have been sustaining me over the last few weeks with all of your great musical theater t- uh, Twitter puns. So keep them coming. Thanks. Bye.